Welcome to another episode of The Last Zebra. I'm your host, Dr. Ugo Ezema, and I have the immeasurable pleasure <laughs> of having a tremendous mentor of mine, someone I look up to greatly, Dr. Jerry Zifochka. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, man. And uh, thanks for pronouncing the name right as well. Of course, um, of course. Yeah, most people are Dr. Z, but uh, Dr. Zifochka, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. Thank you so much. I know... Uh, it's a little late in the evening, so I know you had to step away from the family to be here. So I really appreciate you. Yeah, it's yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. Glad, glad to make it. Glad to make it. Glad we could finally make it happen. Absolutely. So, um, like I've like we've had this conversation before. Uh, essentially, I I try to get the stories behind the people that work in medicine. I think you have one of the most tremendous, one of the most inspirational. I would even say. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What you got? Yeah, man. Uh, so I'm from Zimbabwe, uh, born and bred, grew up in Arare. Um, moved to the, yeah, moved to uh, the States. So I grew up in Zimbabwe. I was there for high school, moved to America for, for uni, for college. Um, so uh, growing up, you know, I thought I was smart. I thought I was good at books. So when I applied, I was like, oh, I'm going to America. I applied to Harvard, to Yale, to like you know, the big, the big unis. Um Rejection, 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 rejection <laughs> <laughs> for college. Um, that was humbling. Yeah, man. Oh, it was it was very humbling because I I remember I wrote my my personal statement on word processor. Um, yes, this was like it wasn't even Microsoft Word. It was Word processor <laughs> on Windows ninety five or whatever wow. the case may be. Um, and no one checked it. I just put it in. I was like, my grades speak for themselves. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh man, um, yeah, man. So um, anyway, I didn't get into the big Ivy League schools, but I uh, got a scholarship. Went to a small um, liberal arts school in Jackson, Mississippi, called uh, Bellhaven College, now Bellhaven University. Um, from there, I um, ended up at well, met my best friends in life and my wife there. Uh, then from there, went to uh, Tulane University uh, for med school, uh, which is where I work now. But I left. Um, I went to Nashville, to Vanderbilt for residency, University of Washington, Seattle, and then lived in Kenya for a year. I, I have a big passion for global health, so yeah. I wanted to go spend a year back home uh, in the motherland. Zim didn't work out, but uh, Kenya was wonderful. And then, yeah, started a job at, at Tulane. That's it. That's nice. What was the transition from, from Zim to <laughs> Jack? Did you say Jackson? Jackson, Mississippi. Wow. What was that transition uh, like? Jacktown. Um, Is no, that what it they say, they say Jacktown? <laughs> yeah, it is Jacktown. Oh, my um, God. No, so it was interesting, right? Because people are like, oh, you're going to America. Oh, you're going to have culture shock. Oh, America's, you know, it's it's so it's so there. It's big. It's America. Jackson. Oh, man. <laughs> so I, I grew up, I, like, I had nothing against Jackson, but I, I grew up in a very big city in right. the capital. Harare is a, a big, big, thriving city. Mm -hmm. Jackson was small, man. Like, mm. uh, compared to Zim, like, compared to what I had grown up with, I, I struggled with it a little bit, but... um. Yeah, the transition was reverse culture shock. I went from big city to uh, to, to Jacktown. It, but, uh, it's not what people usually think about when you say you're you're leaving um, Zimbabwe. I imagine. Well, 
in this context, it's easy to say Africa. Whenever people say Africa, it's not, it's not what people are expecting when you say, I'm going from Africa to America. It, but it, really, what you're saying, you're going from a big city to a small town. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People are like, oh, Zimbabwe. Oh, no, this guy must have come from the village. Um, <laughs> no, man. I came like, from, you guys are in the village. <laughs> <laughs> no, I came from a, from a, from a very, very big city. Um, like, uh, I don't even remember the stats on, on numbers now, right. but, it's, but it's huge. It's thriving. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, to, to a very, very small town. Um, not much to do there so yeah. yeah it was it was it was an interesting experience I, i'm glad i met my wife i met my my friends but uh yeah <laughs> there are a lot of positives. interesting yeah. yeah um you mentioned the big universities and what's the name bell bell haven bell haven i don't even think i ever heard of that place bell <laughs> most, haven most people have it now university yeah which is which i'm sure means it's a sign of progress if you're going from college to university or, uh, I wonder what your viewership will be on this. <laughs> no, man. So uh, they, because like, so I went, when I went to high school, my high school was called a college. And mm. in the British education system, right. like high schools are colleges, right? Yeah. Um, I went to they, Monroe College in Jamaica. Exactly. So they had a problem with, they felt like if they wanted to attract more international students, if they were being called a college, people would think, oh, this is like a high school. So they changed. This is the rumor as to why they changed their name to university from ah. college. It didn't grow any. It just changed it's to a, a university. Semantics. It's a university now. <laughs> Wait, not, not were there college. a lot of uh, international folks there? Uh, enough for them to say, you know, let's uh, change they, from they, college to university. They were, tr- they were trying to grow their international numbers. Most of most of us were, well, there's a bunch of guys on the soccer team. Um uh then a few of us on academics it wasn't a big international right, community right, right. yeah yeah so they were trying to attract more people i wonder if they i wonder if they actually got more people because of that name change that'd I, be interesting to look at i don't know man someday i'll go back to jacktown and find out <laughs> so, yeah when's the last time you went since you graduated uh, Oh, man, you, you, I hope your viewership. <laughs> no offense to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, You're but, not going uh, back. <laughs> You're not I told go- my friends if I had to drive through Mississippi to go somewhere, I'll drive around. Uh, <laughs> You're but, not uh, going to Mississippi. Oh no, no man, no. My wife's from Mississippi. I love it. Um, no, I, I, I lied to my friends. I actually ended up going back a year ago. Because one of my close friends, as I was saying, my closest friends are from there. He was coaching a tournament uh, and he was staying by the school. So he, was, he, he coaxed me into going back. That nice. was the first time in uh, 12 years or something. Like that. Did you do pre-med years. there? I did my pre-med there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. How would you feel about pre-med? I, f- I, I have mixed feelings. Actually, no, I have very strong feelings about pre-med. That if you're not sure that you want to go to medical school, it is a waste of a degree. Yeah. And I found that out the hard way because yeah. um, for a long time, I felt like I was pressured into medical school by my parents. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did pre-med respectfully to my parents. Thank you very much. I am a doctor now. <laughs> but it worked out. It worked, it worked, out. worked out. It worked out. And I'm very, very happy. But um, after um, undergrad, I essentially was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this. I want to find my own thing. So I took a year off. I worked. I worked in the hospital. I eventually found my way back. Yeah. But in that year when I was trying to find a job, no one wanted me. Either I was overqualified or I was underqualified. Yeah. So the, yeah. the pre-med degree is a, is, a, is a waste of a degree, it felt like at the time. And I certain, now that I, you know, when people, when 
have, you know, students asking me, what's your recommendation? I would say, you know, try do something in college, meet your requirements that yeah. you can go to medical school, yeah. but do something else in college that gives you a little bit more uh, roundedness, right? Because if for whatever reason that doesn't work out, you just wasted four years of academic time. I, I agree uh, because you're, you're pre-something when you do pre-med. Yes. You're, you're either going to end up going to pharmacy school, medical school, maybe do a PhD, uh, otherwise be like a junior scientist somewhere. Right. You just, and, and you know, uh, I don't know, section things. And I, I, it's, it's very difficult to use that degree and right. it's not very practical. Right. Um, I did biology, but then I also had like math and chemistry on the side because mm. um, I, I loved the science. I'm a numbers guy, so I, I liked the, the the numbers to it. Biology was just by virtue of I needed it to right. to go to you know to go to med school. I wish I had known. I actually didn't need to be a biology major. I wish I would have actually. In, in, in retrospect, I loved math. Would have majored in math. And that's that's a degree you can use, right? Right. Um, right. Or even engineering or something like that. Very uh, practical. Yeah, very practical. Um, some of the people I went to school with, some of the most brilliant people I went to med school with, had only done the bare minimum mm-hmm. uh, pre uh, pre med requirements and had done engineering, I, for instance. A hundred percent. Some of the so that's sort of the cool thing I've, I learned about in medical school is the diversity of background in terms of uh, education. Yeah, yeah. And that and it, there's no added bonus to doing all the other stuff that you do in pre med. Like I, I, there's so many classes I did um, in pre med that in medical school had no bearing in how well I did. Like yeah, it, yeah. The, the, the niceties of being exposed to anatomy and physiology previous was good, but some of those deeper, deeper ones, uh, I think I did virology at one point. Yeah. It, it's, it's, not, it's, it's absolutely not worth it. Right. Um, so you asked me uh, as you were starting, like, well, how do I feel about pre-med? Uh, it was a bit of a wasted four years, to be honest I with agree. you. Um, yeah. I knew I was going to, I knew I wanted to go to medical school. Like back home, you go directly from high school. Right. I had wanted to go in. I was going to go into med school and that was my pathway. Um, did I need to spend four years waiting until I started medical school right. and redoing really in, in, in reality, a lot of the classes I had done in high school anyway. So, right. uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was not, I mean, I'm glad for the college experience. The American college experience is, it's, you know, it was, it was fun times. It's unique. I got into college football. You know, we would go and watch our soccer team, which was really good at the time. Like, it was, it was just, uh, it was, it was a fun experience. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Played a lot of Mario Kart. You know, that <laughs> just, it was good times. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was America. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it was four years that uh, I could have been doing something else. Yeah. And and certainly where the academia aspect of it is is concerned, I I I do wish I did a different degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I'll be a. I, I feel like especially I I think college is a time that you really you should really hone in on finding out who you are, mm-hmm. and so much of it is in the pre degrees, the pre meds, the pre whatever. So much of it gets bogged down in those like fine details when in in reality, in real world, none of that really matters. None of those really matter. Yeah. And well, the other thing I think, I think is when you get out of college, if you had to work, whatever degree you have should be able to get you a job. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It is four years. You, 
you spend a lot of time, a lot of study, yeah. you should be able to use it and not have a useless degree. Exactly. So yeah. what would you have done? What would, what would your, your, your degree have been? That's a good question. I think I would lean probably into the arts. I also like, I started doing a little bit of, of math. So yeah, I, yeah. I started leaning a little bit into calculus. So I did like advanced calculus. Yeah, yeah. I really, really enjoyed it until, because my, my sister at one point wanted to be an Arturian. I hope I'm saying that Arturial right. Arturial scientist. Arturial scientist. And that was, that was so, I was so fascinated by it. But I didn't think you, I didn't think that would be an option for me, especially because I was pre-med. Yeah. So I started taking these math, uh, math, um, math classes, uh, calculus, uh, advanced calculus, one, two, three. And I was really enjoying it. I, th- there, was a, there was a point where it became that I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't focused on it, on it to the degree that it required because yeah. I, I was a lot more focused on pre-med. And so it became more of a hindrance and, and frustration. But I felt like if I could really sit down and do it, I knew, you know, I, yeah. I, knew I could get yeah. it down. But I, the things that I really, the classes that really stuck to me were a lot of history, a lot of music, um, a lot of art and philosophy. Interesting. So, so I, I really enjoyed those classes in terms of functionality, leaving medical school, leaving undergrad. If I was to choose, if I was to do it all over again, I'd probably do nursing school. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. I would do nursing with a minor in one of those things I was just talking about. Yeah. Something that, you know, gives me a little, like I'm saying, well-roundedness. I, I wish, and this might be a lazy way of saying this, but I wish I learned an instrument in college, yeah. uh, either formally. And I think that in college, because you're kind of forced, you, you, the time is there. I wish I learned an instrument and I wish I learned another language. Yeah. And I think college, for anyone, it's four years. You should be able to walk out of college knowing an instrument, learning an instrument and learn a language. And that's what I would have done, nursing, a new instrument and a, and a new language. That's ambitious. Huh. That's what I would have Interesting. done. Interesting. Yeah. I, I would have, playing an instrument would have been fun. I, interesting, I tell people this. I started playing violin uh, once upon a time. I was in grade four back home. Um, and, you know, my parents didn't value it. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, they were like, my parents didn't how, did you, how did you do it, Matt? <laughs> um, how did you do it in English? Uh, who cares about this instrument that they're sending you home with? Yeah, know, uh, so a guy that I started with, right, he, he ended up playing like concert violin. Like He's, wow. he's brilliant. And he and I played Baba Black Sheep together. Um, so, That's crazy. So I, that, that's one of my regrets. Like, but growing up in Zimmer and like growing up in, a, in, in my family, a more conservative family, I, I love my parents. I'm very thankful. It worked out. Yeah, it but, worked um, out. Yeah, that just wasn't valued, this right. whole playing violin thing. So I would skip lessons and like I just, I, I stopped. I stopped. Right. My school was wonderful. They would give you the violin to take home with you and practice. That's amazing. But then no one would push me to practice at home. But if I wasn't doing my math homework... There's a, yeah, it that was, could be contentious. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there are definitely different priorities. Yeah, very much. But an instrument would have been fun. Um, although I don't know if I'd, uh, I'd look weird with a with a <laughs> with a violin. Now I'm a big guy, but I uh, also played marimba for a while, but really never learned to read music. I lo- so you were talking about you know um, you 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 gravitated towards the arts and history mm-hmm. and everything. I, I, my mind doesn't work that way. Um, mm. Like interesting, I'll do like trivia with friends and these history facts. Unless if it's what was the score in this one football game or whatever. The history facts don't stick with me. But if it's music, 
if someone plays like a line of something or you got it i've got it it's easy like music i think i think in music yeah, um yeah. so it's interesting that you were saying you know you were, you would uh, if people think differently and their minds work differently so so it's fascinating for me that yours is um with history yeah 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 when you say you think in music what does that mean it's um how do i how do i put this like um any it's it's odd my wife thinks it's really funny and the kids love it um any situation that happens in life or some like really small things i can identify what's going on with a song like someone you know slips uh i'm slipping i'm falling i can't get up um wow. it just my mind goes to like some random lyric or some song and i i don't know if it's thinking in music per se but but um I, I don't know, my mind holds on to music and lyrics and beats. So like you can play like a few, you know, beats off of a song and, yeah. and my mind jogs to this is what the song is. That's pretty um, cool. So I, I, that's, I enjoy that. I wish it was more usable in medicine. But uh, <laughs> I was just about yeah, to ask yeah. you, in what way <laughs> could you like, maybe in learning medicine, is there a way that like helped you? In learning medicine? Yeah. Um, so I then, because of that, focus on music and focus on lyrics a lot um so i either had to when i was studying so i guess this is for everyone but when i was studying had to listen to songs that i knew really really well and mm. therefore i'm not focusing and, and remembering them or something that's just completely mindless and doesn't really have lyrics because otherwise i'm gravitating towards the music the and music away from itself. things um how do i use it on medicine though um we have a we have a game on my rounds uh, oh. with my fellows and my residents uh call it the lyric game um <laughs> came up with it trademark uh copyright uh yeah uh, it's um when i'm on rounds i'll i'll give them a few lines whatever because i listen to just very eclectic music yeah. i'll give them a few lines from a from a song and then they have to guess it if they guess it whoever guesses it I'll get lunch or, or Boba tea or whatever, whatever the, the oh, that's cool. is for the day. So, so that's what I use it for now, which is not very practical, but it's, it's fun. How, what's the most random one that, give me a line. What's the most random one that you <laughs> gave? I'm going to try to see if I can get this. Because <laughs> I love uh, music too. All right. Um, let me see. Which one did they fail at? No, so um, a lot of the songs you may know. So this would yes. be, t- this would be a tough one because we, we grew up with the same musical tastes. Um... Hmm. Damn. You, you put me on the spot. Okay. All right. Uh, let me, I'm trying to think of an eclectic song yeah. that, uh, that might be, I'm curious. Um, hmm. All right. Um, I want you to tell me who the band is that plays this. Okay. Uh, and this is, this is, this should be easy. Uh, but they struggled. Um, <laughs> I've got my toes in the water, ass in the sand, um, and then I don't remember the rest of the lyrics, but life is good today. Life is good today. Life is good today. I know that. I know that. I don't know it. <laughs> I don't know it. <laughs> Who is it? Uh, it's Zach Brown Brand. Ah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. You know, I like my chicken fried. Yes. So I did chicken fried for them also. And they didn't get it? Yep. Oh, man. Yep. Cool. Yep. Go beer on a Friday night. But that's not that song, though. No, it's uh, uh, Life is Good Today. That's Life is a, Good yeah, Today. Yeah. Well, actually, what's the name of the song? That's a good question. But it's exactly, I've got my toes in the water. Yes, yes, I do shade. know that. I do. Know. Yeah. I think that those are their two big songs. They are. Chicken Fried yeah. and 
Life is good today. Oh I'm yeah, sure and then there's um oh man um that's that Mississippi roots right there. No, that's, that's, that's oh, where that's coming man. from. It's Zach Louisiana. Brown. It's all the guys that I. It's all the guys that I um I went to med school with in Louisiana. Actually, those guys listen to some country. Music. Oh, I love me some Zach Brown. Uh, I I did not listen to that much country. I still until I don't, you came I here. I don't like country music. I didn't oh, listen no. to a lot until I came here. Okay, that's yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, there's the um, oh man, Sigamana Chicken, Sigamana Chicken. I don't know Sigamana that one. Chicken and watch them feathers fly. <laughs> My dog pizza. <laughs> oh, Wait, man. who is that? Um, I'm pretty sure it's the same band. I think it's them. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I know those two songs. I don't know that one. Sick, I'm on the chicken. I'll have to double check. There you go. Yeah. Maybe I, I got myself with my own lyric game. I love but it. Sick, I'm on the chicken is the name of the song. Um, it's a good song. I actually I like country music. My dad, my dad, growing up, would also would always have like because we had cassettes. Yeah. He would play in Nigeria. I'm talking like in Nigeria, in Nsuka, Nigeria. Yeah. My dad had cassette tapes of country musicians, right? And that's what we would listen to. Yeah. We'd listen to country music. And then uh, when we got older, when, yeah, when we got older, my dad uh, did some advanced education. I'm pretty sure he was doing his master's and his PhD in Houston. And whenever we'd visit, the radio station was stuck on country. So ironically... I don't know if it's ironic or not, but when I listen to country, when I think of country, it reminds me of my dad. Interesting. So that's my nice. connection to. So I love country music. I huh. love country music. Man, I wow, interesting. I I, I hate it, um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's some really good songs out there. Oh man. Um, what what did you listen to in Niger? Because when we grew up, it was like Dolly Parton and like the old exactly guy with the with the white beard, whatever his name was. Um, um, so Dolly Parton for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I, I might be butchering the names now. Um, what's his name? Uh, he sang, wow, what's his name? And I have the songs all in my head. I'll have to remember it, but yeah, with Dolly Parton. There was some old guy. He had, he had a big white beard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, what's his name? I, 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 I can't help you there. I was, not I'm Nash. not a country connoisseur. It's not Nash. Um, but I know exactly who I have his, I have his. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so did I, um, you got to know when to hold them. Yeah. Know no when to fold them. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's, that's it. That's okay, it. Right. So we had that. Um, it's not country music, but like things like brown girl in the ring. Fra, la, 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 la. So we had so many of these cassettes. Um, man, I, what was it? Man. Uh, I, I think like a woman. Dun, 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 Ooh, I don't, I, oh, that's okay, Shania okay. Twain. Oh, yeah, I remember. That's I, Shania, I know Shania, the beat. Yeah, 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 Shania Twain. I love country music. Yeah, even to know. this day, like I still listen to um, like Chris Stapleton. He's yeah. he's he's really good. Yeah, he's big. Um, he's really really big. Um, and my brother now lives in Nashville. Yeah. So, <laughs> which is so funny because and I have a really good friend of mine that lives in Austin, but. Uh, whenever I visit Namdi, my brother, yeah, yeah, and he's he's all about that country music right now. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he <laughs> I don't has. See it. I, no way, really. You, I'm pretty sure he has cowboy boots and everything. <laughs> I'm telling you, oh, he's man. all about that country. Namdi will, if you're driving the car with him, a country. He sometimes will send us like a like some songs like, guys, you, you have to listen to this, and we're listening. It's straight. Normally, I'm thinking he's about to send us some boozy, but nah, he's sending that's, us that sending is... us some. Uh, some 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 country music, yeah. Oh man, if you guys were to meet Nandi, you would you would be surprised <laughs> what, about what he's telling me right now. I'm telling you, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm telling I'll have you. to have him school me on country Bro, one of these days. He loves it. He yeah. loves it. 
But yeah, I love country music. I love it has really good substance. Of course, there's there's a lot of, you know, jokes about country music. Everything is about trucks and stuff, but there's some substance in there. So there's a lot of stuff about trucks, though. There's a lot of trucks. Yeah. yeah. Trucks. I'm pretty sure everybody yeah. got a truck in country music. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Need to get myself an F-350. F-350. Oh yeah, driving down dri- driving down the old town road with my F one fifty or F two fifty. Yeah, talking about your girl. Who left? And don't me. forget your bears too. Oh man, got talk about not the bears. Bud Light though. Um, oh yeah, Bud Light yeah, is in a yeah. I don't know Yingling Yingling Lager, America's oldest lager. It is. Yeah, isn't that so bizarre? Yeah, it really is. How is it Yingling? How it's it's distinctly by name alone. I need to look at the, look at the history of that beer. How is it? And and they proudly say it's America's oldest. I, out of if I was a, a beer company, I would buy that like trademark. Yeah. It's like no, you guys can't say this anymore. You, you know what's funny is maybe they're lying. Have you ever looked it up? <laughs> maybe they're making this whole thing up. I know everyone. No like, one's ever fact checked it. We just all are like we oh, just America's it. oldest lager. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sounds good. I'll have some. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. I don't. I've never. I'll admit, even in the age of like smartphones, I've never sat down and Googled whether or not Yangling is truly America's oldest lager. We need to confirm this. I'm yeah. going to look it up. No offense, Yangling. Maybe you Respectfully. Are. Yeah. In case they want to sponsor us one day. Yeah. <laughs> we, we like Yangling. Yeah, Yangling. Great lager. <laughs> Great lager. <laughs> America's oldest lager. Amer- <laughs> America's oldest lager. America. Yeah. Well, all right. So, <laughs> how did you decide to then be a uh going to pre-med like was it always something that you wanted to do yeah so it's interesting uh when you so i i was sold the you're the smart kid uh you should go into medicine like growing up in 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 zim right you if you were smart you did accounting or you did medicine um maybe law but mm-hmm. really accounting or medicine those are the two things uh so i have a family full of accountants um so I was, you know, when I was growing up, my mom told me, oh, when you were born, the doctor told me this is going to be your doctor. Um, and then my, you know, there was a lot of pressure because I I, I did well in the sciences. Mm-hmm. So it was always a, a lot of pressure to be, um, to go into medicine. Right. Uh, growing up back home, it's like one of the ways out, like doctors did well mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Unfortunately, things in Zermont like they used to be, but but doctors did well. So... I think being told that and having that pressure and then finding I actually did well in the subjects made me think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go be a doctor. Right, right, right. So then for us, like back home, uh, you take A-levels, which you, you're probably yeah, familiar yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, uh, And so at the age of 16, you have to decide pretty much which direction you're going in. Right. Because you only take four subjects for the last two years of high school. Mm-hmm. So at that age, I was like, well, I still do really well at sciences. I want to be a doctor. I want to do maths, biology, physics, and chemistry. Mm-hmm. So the foregone conclusion, I was going into the sciences. Right. A friend of mine, smartly, did math, bio, and accounts, I believe. Mm. Uh, he's still a doctor, but like he did accounts because he was like, you know. It might be useful. It might be useful, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll actually go into accounts. Um, I, I did math, bio, physics, chem. I, I had been doing French up until a certain point, but I blacked out in an exam once and like the words just left me and I was like, man, I don't ever want to be in this situation again. Yeah. Like equations make sense to me. 
these damn uh, conjugations of verbs have just lost me. So, so anyway, um, all that to say, I gravitated towards scientists, right, uh, right. towards sciences. So I decided by the time I was 16, I was going to go into med school. Actually applied, got into the University of Zimbabwe, UZ, got my uh, ID. Uh, but uh, Zim was going through some things uh, um, economically, politically at the time, um, unfortunately. So my siblings had already left the country, so uh, I followed suit. And but, um, they were in England, my three sisters, my brother, my other brothers in San Fran, but um, got the scholarship. America was the dream, right? Right, um, right. When I was growing up, so always wanted to come here, so, so came here and... Uh, when I was asked, you know, what's meet with you, they asked you if you needed an advisor so that they could help you with your subjects. Mm -hmm. They asked me which pathway, and I said, well, pre-med. And little did I know also, right, you're coming to America, uh, they're telling you, oh, if you want to do medicine, you need to do this, 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 and right, that. Right. No one told me, oh, go do an accounting degree um, and just to take your prereqs. Right. Um, I didn't know. Right. I just um, did all the sciences, um, some of which was repetition. Right. Um, but yeah, um, anyway, it was a, it was very much a decided thing. I came in, I was like, I'm going into medicine, um, and that was the pathway. So it's it's not a very exciting one. At some point, I wanted to be a professor of some sort, um, like a, just a mad scientist professor. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, because I work in a medical school, I'm an assistant professor. So, so you're close. So I'm close. And you're growing the hair out. And I'm I'm growing the mad scientist <laughs> hair out. It's graying it's very coming. quickly. It's coming. Um, it's yeah. coming. You're, it, you're fulfilling your destiny. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> professor and a doctor. That's a, that's that's a goal. That's, that's a it. goal. Yeah. And internal medicine, right? Yeah. So from medical school, how did you decide on internal medicine? Man, you're asking good questions today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you my life story. Um, all right, so I played sports. Um, yeah. I grew up, I played rugby. When I went to college, initially tried to play soccer because all the internationals played soccer, but I have two left feet. Um, I was terrible. Uh, but they put me in at mid and I just would defend and hit people. Uh, <laughs> coach on campus, it was a small campus, my, my uni, my college. Um, mm -hmm. He was like, hey man, you're a big guy. You should uh, come try out for football one of these days. American football? American football. Oh, wow. um, I took him up on it. I was like, why not? I'm big. Uh, why not? And so for the last three years of college, I was a defensive lineman. I did uh, not know this. Yeah, man, I played football. Uh, I say played. <laughs> I very much practiced football <laughs> and then sat on the bench. But, uh, you know, well, you were on the team. I was on the team. That's uh, pretty cool. Still. I even got to travel more as a senior. Yeah. Um, usually they left us at home. Uh, we, we, the JV players. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was good. Like, I, I understand the sport more because of it. And I mm. love sport. I love college football. Uh, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, more than the NFL because it just means more at the college level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how did we get on this topic? I just lost my train of thought. We're talking but, about how you chose internal medicine. Oh, internal medicine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Man, I, was, I just took a tangent. For you said you love sports. And I love sports. Yeah. So when I got to med school, the natural progression was I'm going to go be an orthopedic surgeon. Mm. Um, and people were like, oh man, you're a big guy also. Like you just, you just seem like you're going to be an orthopod, right? Right, right. Um, and so I did all the pre things for um, ortho. I did a sub internship in ortho. Like, really? Yeah, I was going to go into ortho. Um, and then I sat in a spine surgery for like 13 hours. And I was miserable, man. Like, I mean, uh, more power to ortho. I, 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 there's a lot of parts of it that I love. Mm -hmm. But I was like, man, if I go train in this thing, I'll go sit in operating rooms holding open a little, a little, a tiny little <laughs> hole in the back of someone's neck and stand there for 13 hours. 
no, 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 I don't want to do this. Um, so then I was like, well, I'm undifferentiated. What else do I do? And I'd actually really enjoyed my internal medicine rotation. Uh, mm -hmm. It was when, um, before new, uh, the new hospital opened, ILH, which was the interim, the yeah, interim yeah, between, yeah, charity between charity and, and UMC. Yeah. I had rotated there and man, it was nuts. It just, you just see so much pathology, amazing patients, amazing people. And like, I fell in love with just the internal medicine part of it. So, so I did a sub-internship in, in internal medicine as well. And when I did that, just... It was a game changer. It was a game. I was like, this is what I enjoy. And the beauty of it was if you do internal medicine, you can go do cardiology, GI, pulmonary critical care, endocrinology, whatever you feel like. It's it's like, you it's deferred uh, decision-making. Decision, yeah. uh, so so that's what I did. That's um, that's how I ended up in IM. And I actually enjoyed it. So so yeah, that's that's how I ended up in internal medicine. So my, mine is somewhat similar. I, I didn't mind by process of elimination. Yeah. So I knew the things I didn't want to do. I, I really enjoy surgery. I even thought about the idea of doing orthopedic surgery as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, once I did my surgery rotation and I remember, and I, I, I might be ashamed to admit this, but I remember I was doing a, my surgery rotation and one of the surgery, um, one of the surgeries we're doing was a vascular surgery when it was a six hours. It wasn't 13 hours. Yeah. It was a six hour surgery. And I kid you not, I think it was one of those days that we woke up at four in the morning. The surgery now was, this one I was on call, so I was there at 6 p.m. So I was, I've been there from four to at least 6 p.m. And so I'm in this surgery. And I think, I, I'm trying to remember if it was a CEA or not, but in any case, I started dozing off, right? Because I was so exhausted. Dozed off and my hand, like touched the sterile field. <laughs> Yo. Oh, Yo. man. Yo, the surgeon, the look he gave me haunts me to this day. Mm -hmm. Haunts me to this day. But th that was a like a like a clear demarcation for me. Like I I can't. This is not for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a that's a good. That's yeah, a, that's a good. Yeah. You know, like this is clearly not for me. Yeah. And um, I always I always think about the people that have specific passions in medicine, and that day. It dawned on me that my passion didn't match up to the expectation. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Right. My passion did not match up to the expectation or my hopes did not match up to the expectation. So I was just like, nah, this is not for me. Yeah. So kicking down the decision, the easy choice from there was internal yeah. medicine. I was like, all right, so many options. Let me just do internal medicine and then figure it out from there. And again, by process of elimination, I knew I didn't want to do rheumatology, GI, blah, blah, blah. But I did really, really like the ICU. I enjoyed my time at the ICU. I don't even think I had like a deep passion for pulmonary. I, yeah. have, for, I have for it now. I think post-fellowship or mid-fellowship into attending, my, my the way I appreciate pulmonary now has been has been tremendous. But, yeah. Uh, Palm Crit was itself also by a process of elimination. Then how did you come to Palm Crit? Um, so I'm a masochist apparently. Um, so my very first rotation, um, as an intern, first day intern, mm -hmm. they put me on nights in the ICU. So it was me and an upper level resident and a bunch of sick patients. Cause it was a referral center, uh, in Nashville. Yeah, Vanderbilt. This is yeah, Vanderbilt. Vandy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you did I am at Vandy. I did I am at Vandy and gotcha. then I did my palm critical care at UW in Seattle. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, 
I was scared, man. Like I, I, I've never done the ICU before. Like I, I've not put in a central line. I've never had to do any of these things. And now it's just me and some upper level overnight with a bunch of sick patients. Right. Um, it was amazing. Um, I will never forget. I've, I messed up my first line. I completely messed it up. Yeah. We used to have these gloves. These um, it wasn't the. It was like a little bit of a retractable, almost rubber glove, the, the sterile glove. Yeah. And I and there was this one vasculopath, a patient who had difficult access, and they wanted us to put in a central line. And I told my upper level, "Look, you should do this." And she was like, "No, oh, that's that's junk, Jerry. Put in the central line. You're here to train." I got in on the first stick. I was like, "Bam!" I uh, started to thread the wire and wanted to move my hand away. And I had stuck the needle through my flimsy glove into the patient. And therefore, I had to abort and pull out. Couldn't get that access again. Like that one stick that would have gotten it. I mean, he had a lot of cloth. Maybe wouldn't have been able to throw yeah, it. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah, yeah. But that was the one stick we were able to get in that patient that oh, day. Oh, my um, goodness. I felt terrible. I mean, he, he did fine. Uh, right, he did right. fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, no, uh, but that that experience of it, the just the the thrill, the thrill, um, really thoroughly enjoyed it. But then I was going through residency, and I was like, man, I said no to ortho. Man, those guys make a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll go to GI. Those guys make a lot of money yeah, also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought GI for a while. Uh, did a little bit of GI research. Um, I, I don't like the smell of poop. Uh, I just, I, I just don't. Uh, yeah, it a, comes with a job. Yeah, there's a lot to GI that's not that, but didn't like we did a few endoscopies, and I was like, man, no, 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 <laughs> no, thank you. I'll take sputum all, all day, day, every day. So then, somewhere along the way in, in residency, I was like, you know, this ICU thing is, it's, it's fun, man. I enjoy mm-hmm. this. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. Um, it helps that I had just amazing. Te- the mentors there were, were were fabulous, and they were passionate about critical care. So I think it's a little biased. They get people who want to go into palm critical care from that, uh, from my residency because they have such a strong group of, right, of palm right, critical care right, folks. Right. So, but um, no, I don't regret it at all. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and yeah, that's that's how I chose. Nice. So, yeah. but you you didn't highlight pulmonary yet. So oh, you, you said critical care. Did someone say pulmonary? <laughs> uh, I'm not a pulmonologist. I am a pulmonologist. So here's the thing. I um, interestingly, I do most of my work is research. Yeah. Uh, so I do pulmonary research. Um, I, I just, I'm, I enjoy the ICU mm-hmm. because you can do something and watch it make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and pulmonary, I, I struggle with clinics, so this is why I couldn't just do primary internal medicine gotcha. is um, more power to the people who can do it, right? Um, working with people who have hypertension, changing their medications over time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Wonderful, wonderful. I struggle with that. I, I want to see change. So I had this intern uh, who I was with this weekend. We had someone whose sodium was high. He's a, um, he's a dermatology prelim. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, you know, sodium's high. You know, what should we do about this? And I was like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, calculate his free water deficit. Give him some free water. And it was very simple. It's something dumb. It's very simple. It's not dumb, like, but it's very simple. And he was like, yo, the sodium came down today. Dr. Z, that's really cool to see happen in real time. Right, right, right. And this is like one of the most minimum things. You know, you intubate someone who's very sick, like, mm-hmm. but just even... I was reminded of it today because he was so excited by such a small change. So, something that simple. Something that simple. So yeah. critical care is fun because you can make those changes. And 
uh, see them take place. And this was over a day. There's right. some things you do, you know, minute to minute, right. uh, hour to hour. Right. So, and then pulmonary. Sorry, uh, clearly I love critical care because I'm telling you <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. Pulmonary. Um, I'd learned, I enjoyed in fellowship, but I'm just not a clinic person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to be starting one soon. TB clinic. Uh, if you have TB, come see me. Uh, hopefully you don't. Uh, but um, <laughs> don't get TB. Don't get TB. But um, yeah, no. Uh, I, my research is in TB. But yeah, I, I, I enjoy high octane stuff. So yeah, you tell me about your enjoying pulmonary now. I yeah. So I think it's funny because I. I, I Whenever I think about it, uh, I remember my um, my personal statement. Yeah. So my personal statement was actually was actually pulmonary heavy. My personal statement for mm-hmm. fellowship was pulmonary heavy. Interesting. Um, but it applies more now than it did then. So my personal statement essentially spoke about how in the lung in the pulmonary clinic, there there are very few symptoms that feels more impending like shortness of breath yeah that's true right and when you make a difference to someone that has shortness of breath it is profound in their life yeah with as simple as an inhaler like an inhale i can't tell like now and especially i think as an attending i'm i'm appreciating it more um and the the closer you get to attending ship so from as a as a resident you're in clinic, but you're really, you really. I went to a community uh, residency, yeah, so it was yeah. it was my attendings who were really my um, mentors that kind of got me into pulmonary critical care. I had no idea I was going to do pulmonary critical care prior to residency. It's not something I even entertained. Yeah, um, but I had tremendous mentors, Dr. Espinoza and Dr. Alabasi. Um, just fantastic people. They were very passionate. Going back to what you were saying, like it. it I, one thing I love about medicine is. You, you, the people that inspire you can change your life, right? Yeah, yeah. They change your life. And it's not something that you predict. It's not something you expect, but that's how it happened. That's how, it, because I had these two that really had a profound uh, effect on me. But in the pulmonary clinic as a resident, you function more of, as a resident, you're functioning more of a, as a data collector, right? Yeah. So you go, you listen, you do your thing, you go present. The decision is above your head. And you should know why the decision was made. But really, and of course, your attendant will ask, you know, what do you what do you think? But yeah. you as a resident, you're responding to what your attending wants to hear. Yeah. And that can yeah. that can be different depending on who the attending is. Yeah, that's very true. Right. Yep. So you you know who the attendant is. You're like, oh, yeah, sure. The, you know. This is what this is what they want to hear. So this is what the answer is. So you say that. As a fellow, uh, that still applies, but you get a, lo- a little bit more auto- autonomy. But it's not enough for you. At least it wasn't enough for me to be like, man, to to certainly appreciate the benefit that a patient is getting from that decision. As an attending, is when that patient now says, Doc, man. That changed my life. Yeah, and they, they're they're telling me like they're like and I made that decision right. Something as simple as starting them on an inhaler, um, giving them the, the even even giving them some recommendation or teaching them how to use their inhaler properly, like the simplicity of it all. Yeah, yeah. But shortness of breath, which is what we were, we're I was I, I tell like anyone that's willing to listen, we're bronconauts, right? So like. We, 
the shortness of breath is a is such a profound feel, in the sense of like you you feel like you're drowning, and when it's alleviated, there's a breath of fresh air becomes so much more valuable. Yeah, and that is what I'm appreciating now. Interesting. And, and I love I love it. I love it. Of course, there the challenge with that, of course, is if if I tie myself <laughs> to those positives, which I, I'm now learning now is to you have to accept that there are things you, you don't can't, always get them. You yeah, don't always get you them. Don't yeah. get them. You don't always get them. So um I I appreciate simple asthmas, simple COPDs, where you give an inhaler and it makes a big difference. Yeah. But more importantly for me now, I am more um empathetic to people i think now i'm much more empathetic to people that you can't provide that for yeah right so people that have really bad fibrotic lung diseases interstitial lung diseases that the treatment is going to be a little bit more um like it's going to take a little bit more time to kind of get them to a place of really of acceptance that maybe they're not going to go back to who they thought who they were yeah and that becomes a very different type of medicine for me um but i'm also enjoying that like it becomes much more personal and in med i feel like in pulmonary in a pulmonary clinic you get to know your patients in 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 a really really cool way and the questions we ask like what kind of pillow do you have yeah um you know like the, the things that we're asking you what, what what's your job no what's your job before that and your job before that did you ever do sandblasting did you ever do sandblasting did you do you have cats dogs birds um what like the way you know your patients, especially in that first initial consult, uh, my favorite author, one of my favorite authors is Arthur Conan Doyle. Yep. Sherlock Holmes. I lo- I've read every single Sherlock Holmes um, short story about a hundred times. Yeah. And in, in that initial consult visit of a pulmonary visit, oh man. You feel like Sherlock? I feel like Sherlock. All right. I feel like, I feel like Dr. House. That's inspiring, <laughs> man. You, you make me almost want to be a pulmonologist. <laughs> uh, I, but yeah, that's how, that's how it is for me. And now I'm appreciating that a lot more because that decision, um, when the patient is, is interacting with me, I feel like that interaction is, is unhindered yeah. by somebody else. Right. So like, and obviously it's the way things are. You have to learn. Yeah. So it's not, it's not to say that I didn't enjoy pulmonary fellowship. I certainly did. Yeah. Um, I think the relationship with the, with the patient is what's different now. And I'm appreciating that relationship a lot more. That, that makes sense. Yeah. No. So for me, like, it's not the, uh, it's interesting because you actually sound, it sounds like you enjoy the clinic. Yeah. yeah for yeah. me, like the, the subject matter of pulmonary was fun. Actually, interestingly, mm-hmm. I, I didn't go into it wanting to do palm, but the subject matter was fun. So when I see people, for instance, inpatient in the hospital on pulmonary consults yeah, yeah yeah i actually enjoy that but again that's high octane because like it's a you're trying to figure out what's going on and change no. um i think where i struggle is and and, and I'm, I'm i'm intrigued by your, your your love of this is trying to um work with people long term mm-hmm. on lifestyle like smoking for instance so that's 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 my struggle and then um I know it's a struggle for people because I have close family relatives who, you know, who smoke mm-hmm. and I've tried and spoken to them and everything else. And like, you know, there's, there's things that work, there's things that don't work and we're, we're learning more and more about what works. But mm-hmm. for me, that was a, 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 a struggle with being in clinic, uh, similar to when I did a uh, primary um, clinic, for instance, I just struggled with, with lifestyle aspects. So yeah, how yeah. do you, how do you deal with that? That's a good question. I, I, 
I'm learning about that myself now. I think more recently what I've started, the way I've started approaching my patients is like when it comes up, I, I, I always say, you know what I'm going to tell you. Like yeah. I, I say that up front, right? Once we, we, we both know that you smoke, I know you smoke, you know you smoke. Yeah. You know what I'm going to tell you. And then I ask them, what am I going to tell you? <laughs> and so they tell me, I need to quit smoking. I was like, sure, there, you need to quit smoking. I think everything, and I, this is almost verbatim what I say, that is the most important thing you can do. And that's the most important thing I want you to get out of this visit. Yeah. Um, there are other things that we're going to talk about, but that is the big thing. I am not a judge. I'm a doctor. I'm here to work for you. I work with you. Um, and I think my, the biggest mental shift I've made is that once I know that my patient smokes, that it's going to take some time to get them. Like I just accept it's going to take some time to get them to a point where they feel, um, uh, where we can get them to quit smoking. And I also ask, do you want to quit? Yeah. When they say no, I, I, I know I just, I just let it be next visit. I'll be like, do you want to quit? And they say, no, I was like, all right. No problem. Again, we, you understand that this is, this is the biggest thing that you can make. And I, I just make it known up front and that provides me some sort of peace of mind. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and I also don't want to be too uh, paternalistic and too aggressive about the way I, I give recommendations. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also counter to my personality but it does give me a peace of mind knowing that I have that open conversation. They know where I stand. Um, I know where they stand in the first two, three, four, five minutes of the visit. And, and I, I revisit it every time, but I don't, I don't make it a, a pressing issue. I offer them alternatives if they're, if they're interested. If they're not, like, just keep it moving. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I do okay with that. It is challenging, of course, because yeah. like... Yeah. I, <sighs> If people actually just took care of themselves, um, our jobs would be much less like everything. We'd yeah. have much less everything. Yeah. If 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 they if 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 because I think primary prevention is what's really lacking in a lot of healthcare, and if people focused on that with their own person, they, without and the other thing, I, my mom and I were talking about it. My mom is a is a is a family physician. Yeah. And we spoke about this a few years ago that patients spend less than 1% of their time with us. Yeah, much less than 1%. Much less than 1%. The rest is with them. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's on you, right? And to say that I'm going to take one, that much less than 1% to change your life in such a way that, especially for something that significant, um, I, it, Going to it's a tall task. Fair enough. So yeah. okay, that makes sense. So it's not you don't take it personally. Uh, no, yeah. No. So I, I struggle. I think I take things personally. And um, <laughs> man, I'm I'm failing with this with this individual. I'm failing. I need to mm. succeed and pass. Uh, I need to get this task, which is stop them from smoking, um, and therefore, like I, I then you're not achieving that. I'm task. not achieving that, and therefore satisfaction is just is is much lower for me when i'm when i'm when i'm in that situation so yeah it's it's a little bit it's interesting i i'm, I'm glad you, you 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 know you don't take things first i, I yeah. struggle with it yeah uh so like if i change a medication in the icu 
whatever happens is mostly on me and right, right. the patient, uh, right. depending on how sick they are. But yeah, I get that instant satisfaction of this thing changed or and or they're too sick for it to change. So so it's um yeah. I'm a, I'm a gratification kind of guy. Yeah. I, I enjoy the gratification. So, yeah. It does make me think about how <laughs> objectively, I understand it, the pairing of pulmonary and critical care. Yeah. I understand it. I understand why it is. But it's two different mindsets. It's very different mindsets. Yeah. So in the and you know, like elsewhere, like it's the anesthesiologists or, yeah. or, or anesthetists yeah. uh, who are critical care doctors, yeah. and they live in the moment. Those guys and gals are the like the ultimate live in the moment. Yeah. I give a medication. Someone goes to sleep. I give a reversal medication. They wake up. They wake up. Their paralysis is gone. Like that's they minute to minute, hour to hour. So yeah. critical care makes sense. It's just, um, well, the traditional reason was, you know, this, the ventilators, right? right. Was uh, lung doctors, no lung mechanics, uh, in the US anyway. So therefore, they should be the ones who are potentially intensivists. intensivists in terms of the ventilator. And so much of critical care is, you know, tied in with someone being sick enough to be on the vent. Right. But uh, it, it is, it's very different specialties because, yes, yeah, I, I can manage the vent well, but the, my, my mind process or my thought process is very little pulmonary when I'm right, in the ICU. Right, right. Um, I agree. So, yeah, you're right. I don't, yeah. It, it, it's, I, like, like you said, I understand why it got paired in the first place. Yeah. With the, it has to be the ventilator. That has to be the, 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 mm-hmm. the tying reason. But the, the me that is a, a pulmonologist and the me that's an intensivist, we're very different we, we function and practice very differently. Yeah, yeah. If I went to my pulmonary clinic and thought like an intensivist, my goodness, and vice versa, then nobody would ever like it. Pulmonary is a much more patient, like patient in terms of time. Yeah. And uh, critical care is, is critical in terms yeah. of time. Yeah. Like, you know, you things that, well, <clears throat> sorry, one of my favorite things about the ICU is when someone rolls into the ICU, you know what you need to do. The vet, like it, something needs to happen now, and just by them presenting, you know what that thing is. Yeah. It's they need to be intubated. They need to be on pressors. They need the. You know exactly what the primary issue is. We need to do this right now. Yeah. Um, and that decision is dictated by the patient. Everything else becomes waxing lyrically once you settle that patient down. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's one. The the ICU is. Probably my most, the most comfortable I feel in the hospital. If on the floors, I've said this uh, also on the floors, the regular medicine wards, I'm just like, what? This place is chaotic. What is going on up here? Like what? You're dealing with five or six or seven different chronic problems. What is going on? Yeah. What? What? Yeah. In the ICU, there's order. Yeah. There's there's control. <laughs> you know, like you know, even in that chaos, there's order and control. Yeah. Even in the chaos of the critical care unit, there is order and control. Um, and I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, and pulmonary is much more, it's much more art, right? So it's, it's a lot of art. It's a lot of, um, it is, it's an art of medicine. Yeah, type the, thing. the art of medicine, yeah. you, you feel it in pulmonary for sure. And then it's a lot of waiting because like, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll see someone today, 
you'll get the CT scan, yeah. you'll send off the, you know, the serology, the lab work that may get sent to Never Neverland, some <laughs> reference hospital in, I don't know, Denver, Colorado, and then not come back to you for a long time. Yeah. And then when that comes back, you're like, well, I don't really know. Let's go get a lung biopsy. Yeah. Um, man, it is, yeah, it's... it's and then it's, you talk to your friends that are pulmonologists and they're like, well, I, I know you think it's this, but really, yeah. honestly, I've seen a case like this. Yeah, but have you tried steroids? <laughs> have you though? tried steroids? It always comes back to steroids. It always comes back to steroids. So, so no, it's it's good. It's, 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 it is, as you said, I guess, if, if you're to come back to your analogy, uh, you're a Sherlock of, of sorts because... Yeah. Lung medicine isn't, yeah, it's not always simple. It's, it's not. you know, finding the, it is fun when it's simple asthma or simple COPD because yeah. it's gratifying. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it's a, it, you know, it's an adventure trying to figure out what's yeah. going on. Well, how has it been now? Because you've been, you are my attending. Yeah. Um, so this is about four or five years now into four, four years. year four into attendingship. Yeah. How has that been? Um, man, I feel much more comfortable. Um, I really do. Uh, as you said, like, where do you feel most comfortable? Like, um, when I'm outside of the hospital, people will ask me, like, medical questions and, like, or they'll show me their rashes and stuff like that. And I, I you know, that's, not, not, the that's not, it's it's not, not the same. same. But, like, when someone's critically ill, like, very, very, very sick. Um, one of the, so when I started, I told you I started as a night intern, mm -hmm. but then we had a lecture the next morning. And a guy, um, um, uh, rest in peace, Art Wheeler, uh, he sat us down and he'd give this talk for ICU orientation and he was like, you know, whenever someone is really sick and things are hitting the fan, I don't know how family friendly this is, um, I want you to be the calmest person in the room. Mm. That's what a critical care doctor is, the calmest person in the room. Because mm -hmm. if you're freaking out, you're not really thinking, all right? And you're not thinking uh, objectively. So nowadays, and, I, and that stuck with me. He said that. This was my second day of interview because I'd stayed up overnight. Mm -hmm. So I was maybe delirious. Maybe he didn't say it exactly <laughs> like that. But no, that, you know, it stuck with me. So now when I'm in the hospital, it's fun because like, you're like, oh, this person's really sick. This is going on. This is going on. And yeah, I'm getting excited and I'm processing the information. But then you take it in and you're calm and you're like, okay, there's patterns. Critical care as you go on and on is patterns. Mm -hmm. And like you start to hear the words, you start to see the thing, you look at the labs and you're like, this is this pattern going this way. Every once in a while, there's a zebra. Uh, shout out shout to, out to zebra. the last zebra. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of it is patterns and it's a lot of fun because like I was talking to a friend of mine to, uh, yesterday morning, he and I were sitting next to each other when we were pre-rounding. And I like to play this game where before I even read about what's going on with the patient, I just look at their vital signs and their this. labs and try to decide what's that. going on with them before I ever read the story. And I've, it's becoming easier and easier and easier as time goes by. So um, because there are patterns, you just start to see them. So I'm, I'm comfortable. I love it. Um, the first year, if you had asked me this question, because <laughs> I started, um, I was off cycle. I, yeah. I did a year abroad. Uh, abroad. Uh, this is abroad. Uh, although it's home now. Yeah. Um, nah, so I started in November 2019 uh, and then March 2020, uh, COVID. Uh, and I was a young attending. Uh, and I mean, you know, I had done all the training. I knew all the things. In fact, I was like, you know, very fresh from the board exam. So mm -hmm. I was about as smart as I'm going to be. Right. But then COVID was tough. Um, and you start to question yourself, you start to question the things you've learned, like it just, 
it was a difficult time. Right, and, and right. you know, I spoke to colleagues, senior colleagues, junior colleagues, everyone was feeling it because just no matter what you did, some people would... Just nothing was happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so that first year, I think, was the toughest year in, 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 in practice that I've... And I've only done four years, but that mm-hmm. was the toughest year in practice, not only because I was new. Like, I felt pretty good about my knowledge right. base. It was more the 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 subject matter and then like COVID coming at the time that it came. Um, so it was like, you know, it was as if I signed up for a war uh, without knowing it. Yeah. And I was in the trenches within like four months of starting my job. Uh, but now, I mean, COVID's still a thing, but um, uh, it's, it's fun now. It's, it's a lot more critical care, a lot, a lot of different pathology. It's not the same... Uh, formula. So, so yeah, I feel I feel good. Four nice. years in is four years in is good. Um, hopefully, you saw that progression as I was uh, training you as my fellow, absolutely, and, and my twin in the hospital. <laughs> oh yeah, everybody, everybody. <laughs> to, to this day, I'm sure somebody out there thinks that we're the same person. Oh man, I I'm pretty sure there's a couple of ladies uh, in the <laughs> hospital who still talk to me as if I've been the sweetest person to them. <laughs> And I'm like, man, the sweetest person is Ugo. You probably had a very good interaction with him. But um, everyone just thinks, yeah, it's, uh, especially when like you, your hair was like mine also. Yeah, and like, yeah, 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 yeah. People were just like, yeah, yeah, uh, Dr. Ugo. No, no, actually, I'm, I'm Dr. Zafogica. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah. COVID was bizarre. I think we did, we, so we cover in fellowship, we cover the VA, UMC, and Tulane. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of my COVID experience was the was UMC, and because of second and third year, was UMC and the VA, um, prim- primarily in the VA. And the VA is a beautiful hospital. Yeah. Right. So is UMC. COVID was bizarre because you you could st- and it, the weather here was phenomenal. Yeah. When COVID was rocking the world. <laughs> yep. You could and you could stand. They had these. They have these beautiful windows at uh-huh. the VA where you could just stand outside and look outside, and the, the sun was out. It was a beautiful days, cloudless skies, no rain, nobody in the streets, and behind you is a full bed of critical care yeah. patients in COVID intubated. All of them had were essentially the same. If if they're not the same, they're about to become the yeah that, that and. The way I thought about COVID, going back to how, you know, the simple asthma and the simple COPD, what COVID made me appreciate is a simple DKA. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, so now I, I don't take DKAs for granted. <laughs> you know, I don't take, when someone comes in for a COPD exacerbation, heart failure exacerbation, where yeah. the answer is, you know, steroids, antibiotics, um, time, or um, Lasix yeah. and time or insulin and time with COVID, it was just time. <laughs> like yeah, there was, yeah. you know, time to, to, ex, to expiration essentially. Yeah. And that made, I was just like, it, it was, it felt hopeless. I, there, there would be weeks you'd be in, in rotation. And you're just like, what am I even doing here? Yeah. It, 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 it did feel hopeless, man. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of us have PTSD from that time um, and, and not, very processed PTSD. Yeah. Um, I was asked to give a talk to my fellowship uh, during the height of COVID um, because like Seattle got the first few cases, but yeah, then they weren't right. hit as hard. 
Uh, and then New Orleans was just in the thick of things, and mm-hmm. they were like, "Hey, man, give us a, a talk on COVID." Uh, there was a guy in New York who was giving a talk on COVID in New York, and then me in New Orleans yeah. when things were bad. And then I started like I. They told me talk about anything you want to talk about. This was like for uh, just our fellowship grand rounds. And I started to talk about the stages of grief for COVID. That's what yeah. my, my my PowerPoint slide is. I, I'm thinking of going back to it again someday. But it was the stages of grief. And I was just like, I was in mourning for a long time because, mm. you know, you, you remember these people. And um, oh, there was this one lady, man, she had beautiful, long dreadlocks, amazing lady. Um, she was telling me about, you know, her life, her family, getting sicker um, and needed to be intubated. And it was the first wave and mm. if you were getting intubated in the first wave like we knew what that meant you, you were most likely going to die unfortunately mm. uh that would you know my in my experience unfortunately so i remember her like i was the last person i who heard her voice before we intubated her so i was the last person who heard her voice period and she was just this i feel like she had a lot of life in her mm-hmm. uh and i watched that just go you know um and that's that that one haunts me uh there's another one that she was you know uh, yeah there's a few that haunt me um and i think a lot of us have these stories and we we just don't we haven't processed them and haven't spoken about them but and covid ah covid was rough man uh it it, like the height of it in this city was yeah it was was very difficult and it's talking about or speaking about not processing that stuff is because it kind of just went away not went away but you know like the way society just kind of moved on yeah yeah you know they have and we also kind of by virtue of the way our work is like you know patients don't wait for you to recover yeah yeah you You, you just have to keep going (laughs) you just have to keep going yeah there's the people to see you just gotta keep going yeah um yeah COVID was wild yeah that pan the pandemic is wild was wow yeah you um, um uh, and I'll, I'll sorry to cut you off uh you were talking about you know being in the VA and looking down so my wife and i chose to live in the quarter for the first six months while yeah, looking yeah, for a house when we yeah. came back to new orleans she lived in the quarter proper and the goal was you know like we'll go to restaurants and we'll walk on the you know on the riverfront and yeah. we'll go to like the parks that are close by i ended up doing that because I, I sent my wife and kids away but i would do that and there was no, no one in the quarter i know wow. the french quarter really really well yeah. now because I could walk without bumping into anyone and I just would go up and down the roads. That was my, you know, my exercise and just listen to musical podcasts. And but, anyone uh, that knows New Orleans French Quarter, for it to be like that is literally a definition of a ghost town. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was shocking because if you go down now, any time of day, there's a lot of people there at yeah. 3 a.m. Uh, and there was no one. I would, I would walk, be Saturday, you know, 6 p.m., walking to the riverfront just to go get a walk and there was no one. So. Wow. It was it was an odd time. It was eerie. It was eerie. But um, yeah, it. let's move on. Um, <laughs> I'll process my my, my PTSD somehow at, at another time. Yeah. Um, global health. Yeah, man. What is that? I know that's. I, I think that was the first thing anyone ever told me about you. Yeah. Was oh man, he's a global. He's the global health guy. The, you know? the global. Health the global guy. health guy. Oh man, I wish I wish I I could just be labeled that and just be that. Yeah. Um. No. I'm, uh, so global health is um. And it's interesting. Um, it's um, looking at the world as not just America, but looking more at it as 
whatever's going on in Kenya and Zimbabwe can affect what's going on in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's people who work in these lower resourced areas and are working in the field of what we, global health now. Uh, there's a shift away from, you know, people used to do these um, medical missions where you right, go, right. you're there for a month, uh, you work on something and then you leave. Um, and there's no um, thoughts on the like, how sustainable what you left was or what you did or whatever. So like if you go leave a bunch of clean cooking stoves that need a particular fuel, have you provided people with the fuel that they're right. going to need long term or are they going to use them for a month and then put them up on their shelves? I'm using a real uh, case. Um, so now it's uh, thinking about medicine in lower resource areas from a, in a um, practical standpoint. Uh, for me, I being from Zim, I always wanted to go home and work home or figure out some way very quickly through training. Um, I never thought I was going to do research, uh, but I went to a research-heavy residency, then fellowship. And I, I realized, you know, I can make a big difference from a research standpoint, like bigger than my going and trying to see 20 patients a day mm. when I go to Zim maybe I can actually help shape policy on tuberculosis diagnostics or whatever the case may be. And that makes a big difference. So I do research now, kind of, I do some population stuff, some TB diagnostic stuff, but then I also, I fell in love with, um, I I never thought I'd be a TB doctor. I didn't want to be stereotypical and be like, the Zimbabwean guy who studies HIV and TB. It's so stereotypical. I fell into it. My mentor, that's what she was doing. And then, really fell in love with this field called post-tuberculosis lung disease where we're realizing more and more that people who survive TB have abnormal lung function, have chronic symptoms, Mm. and they're just sent out into the world. You're cured, but you're short of breath. You're coughing. You can't even walk, you know, a kilometer without feeling short of breath. So, So that's the field that I'm studying is how does this come about and how what are ways that we can potentially treat it for the long term that's that's my my career uh in in global health but then working within the structure of we have a partnership with the kenyan medical research institute uh it's a long-term partnership we're building infrastructure i've trained a lot of people there on how to do lung function testing some of them have gone on to other jobs but they have that skill set now. right so hoping you make a bigger difference in a sustainable fashion right um, so, yeah, that's um, a very long answer to what is global health. A very that, long that but is- great answer. I think that essentially covers exactly what I was hoping to hear. Is to, But what I'm hearing is essentially a way to make um, healthcare abroad, not just a fad, but yeah. much more practical yeah. and much more sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Within within the limits of what's there, which which right. I think, yeah. Right. And it's interesting. Um, man, back to COVID. Um <laughs> I interviewed for internal medicine at this relatively prestigious place once upon a time. And I interviewed with this one guy and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I told him global health. Mm. Uh, Then he's like, you know, but why? And I was like, you know, um, the world is getting smaller. People travel and like, it's no longer Zimbabwe health. It's no longer America health. It's it's like just health. Right. And things can move from place to place. He's like, ah, you know, uh, he was like, yeah, but why would you want to do it? And then I reshaped my answer because I was like, look, man, I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter if I'm working in Zim uh, or in Louisiana. Uh, and the interview was not in Louisiana. Um, wherever you are, like what's shaping the health there can affect the health here. Right. Um, and he seemed incredulous. And so, you know, we finished the interview. It was one of my least favorite interviews. And we're walking away. He's walking me back. And he's like, you know, uh, I was like, 
you know, you asked me about global health a few times. What are your thoughts on it? He's like, you know, don't don't kid yourself that you're making a difference. Is is, is what he said. Wow. Um, that stuck with me. I didn't rank that school. Uh, I did not want to go there uh, because I. So, oh, so this was the interview. This was the interview day. This guy was telling me this on the interview wow. day. He was like, don't think, don't kid yourself. You're making a difference with global health. Um, and then COVID since happened, and and as we now know, uh, China health is America health. America health is wherever in Europe. Europe health is South Africa, Botswana, Botswana. Right, so it, right. it, it, it didn't matter where you were. Um, and some of the best evidence we have was not from these great United States. It was like from England uh, using dexamethasone, for right. instance. So, um, and some of the sequencing for the different variants was out of South Africa, right. out of Botswana. Right. Uh, so um, global health is, I guess it's, it's a growing entity. It, it I can't say I'm proud that COVID happened, but I think it it, it highlighted the importance right. the importance of right. it. Um, why TV? Right. So how is is TV that prevalent in Zim, or uh, is it is it you know you mentioned how that stereotypical HIV TV? Yeah. Why TV? Yeah, man. Uh, so man, so. I, when I started to do pulmonary, mm-hmm. um, when I did critical care, I wanted to do global health critical care because I was like, I want to oh, do wow. the critical care part of global health, go research critical care. So I actually went to my fellowship to UW uh, to go work with some guy who does global health critical care. Mm. While I was there, I met my uh, my mentor now, who's been my mentor for four, well, oof, seven years. Um, and she was like, well, we, we did this mentoring day and she was like, well, I work in Africa. You could go do critical care research, but you're going to be working in Southeast Asia. If you want to work in Africa, you could come and work with me. I've got a mentee who's worked in Kenya. That's why Kenya also, not Zimbabwe, mm. uh, is because my fellowship already had infrastructure there and they've been working gotcha. there for more than 10 years. Gotcha. Um, I was like, okay, cool. What are you doing? And she was like, HIV. I was like, man, I've been trying to avoid HIV as a subject because people were like, oh, this Zimbabwean guy just wants to work in it. That's stereotypical. Uh, I was like, okay, fine, let's do it. So I went to go do this project in HIV. It was half people living with HIV, half HIV negative individuals. We enrolled them, tried to look at what were the factors associated with their lung disease. And what was most associated in this rural, uh, I say rural, uh, it's the third biggest city in, in Kenya, uh, semi-rural uh, uh, community was TB, was the biggest determinant. Prior TB was most associated with lung disease in this uh, cohort of individuals. Wow. Um, and so, you know, for me, that was eye-opening. I was like, right. oh, wow. And then I started reading more, find out there's this whole world of post-tuberculosis lung disease. It's a burgeoning world. It's just started growing and... Uh, I was like, man, I, I want to study this. It's a field that's hot. It's a field that's growing. So all of a sudden now, not only am I HIV researcher, I'm a TB researcher, which all goes hand in hand. But I mean, those are the problems that are important. So, right. so that's what I'm working on. Right. But, uh, if you had asked me, I would have been doing, you know, lactated ringers and normal saline trials <laughs> in, uh, in Zambia or something or Zim. But um, yeah, that's how I ended up where I am. Um, and yeah, now uh, been in working in Kenya f- since 2018, so that's five five years. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think I was on to ask you. I don't think we ever got the chance to talk about it much about, but I knew that um, global health was something that was really passionate, something that you're really passionate yeah. about. But I don't think we ever got the chance to talk about it. At yeah. least not to this degree. Yeah, yeah. So that's really it's really nice to hear you talk about it. Like yeah, that. yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah. It is, it, it's something that is close to heart. Um, I, I don't know how it is for you. Like for me, right, um, I've been very fortunate. Mm. 
Um, my parents, like, and people will say this and you, you roll your eyes, <laughs> but my parents grew up in the village, in yeah. like the village, village mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe, right? Um, and they, my dad had a leg up because his brothers were older and they educated him somewhat, but he also studied a lot and got mm-hmm. a good job. Mm-hmm. My mom studied a lot. She had some older siblings. She went to, she became a teacher when if it was pre, it was still colonial times. We were still a British colony. Uh, so if you were smart and black, right, you did, you did, you were a teacher. Mm-hmm. So she became a teacher. And uh, the two of them like rose out of poverty into a very good middle class life yeah. and then sent us to incredibly good schools back home. And from that, me and my siblings have been able to step on their shoulders and come a little bit further up. But relatives, first degree relatives, not looking away further five six seven degrees removed may not have had the opportunities that i had just Mm -hmm. because my parents had a couple of legs up and then gave us that leg up Mm -hmm. so i'm very aware of that in my daily life i i do i like nicely i think we spoke we've spoken about this before but then i'm also very aware of who i am so whenever i write a personal statement or write a letter or talk about who i am i'm always i always started with um Zimbabwean saying, which is Zivakwakava, which mm-hmm. is always remember where you came from. Mm-hmm. And um, two generations removed, I'm from the village in Zimbabwe. Um, very proud of that, actually. So, so that's another reason I, I, I've always tried to, I want to go back and do global health. Eventually, I'm going to make it into Zim and be doing my global health there as well. Um, maybe form a giant cohort with Kenya. Um, that, that's in, that's, that'll be in the works, but yeah. um, that's, that's, that's why I do what I do. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Man, thank you so much. This yeah. has been uh, this has been awesome. I can't wait. To, we have a lot more that we could talk about oh, for sure. Oh man, Liverpool, <laughs> Liverpool for sure. Uh, you'll could, never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Top of the league. Stop the count. Um. <laughs> Can something? You know, it's funny. Um, the last time Liverpool won the champion, the the league again, going back to COVID. Yeah. So it feels like I I, I want Liverpool to win it. Yeah. Like, cause it, it it's not an asterisk season, but it feels uh, asterisky. Then, Especially how good we were. We were so so good. I mean, yeah. we were smoking the league. Yeah. Um, we won by like what fifteen yeah. points or something yeah. like that. We yeah. won the league almost earlier than anyone else had ever won it before. <sighs> we but, need to win it. But man. you you see that that little voice in the back of your head is all your friends who support Manchester United, who support Chelsea, who support Arsenal, who've told you that it's an asterisk season. I know. It was not. It was we not. We won the it's league. Not, it's not. We won it. Fair and square. Fair and square. Fair and, and it square. Was brilliant. Um, no, I'd love to win it again. Yeah. Uh, so top of the league. Top of the league. Maybe maybe we'll get together after the season's over and then do um, just a celebratory episode. For I know. We'll Liverpool. do a, dedicate a, an entire episode about what it's like to be a Liverpool yeah, fan. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's yeah, there's actually a lot more to talk about. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, we should do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yeah, cheers, man. Thanks All for right. thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. How do we do?